Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming along on this uh, lovely evening. Uh, I hope you managed to put the sunblock on before coming. It's, uh, uh, but we've had a good year, I think, weather-wise at least. Um, I'm here to introduce and honoured once again for my final series of lectures here at Gresham. It's my fourth year of uh, giving lectures in this wonderful building to wonderful audiences that have allowed me to think about issues at a broader and deeper level than I might have otherwise have done in my day job. Um, uh, and um, I want to say how much I've enjoyed giving these lectures and I hope some of you have at least enjoyed uh, listening to them over the last few years. Um, this year I'm going to uh, address a very small issue and that's a, a, blue, a blueprint for Brexit Britain which is going to be increasingly hard for me to say as the, as the years go on or as the evening goes on in fact. Um, uh, but what I want to focus on today is, is not particularly a set of answers, I want to explore aspects of the problem, the puzzle. And um, the deep puzzle that we have to solve as a country and as an economy is our lack of productivity growth. So I'm going to spend probably far too long today showing you lots of charts about how badly we've been doing at productivity domestically um, without necessarily giving you anything more than some clues as to what I think the answers are. For a bunch of answers, come to my sixth lecture in however many weeks that is. I'm sorry, I'm not going to give away the... I'm not going to give away the, uh, uh, the who did it just yet. You're going to have to come along a little bit later. Um, but I think the question that we need to be asking as citizens in a country which is seeking to leave the European Union is how in this process are we going to solve the fundamental problems faced by the British economy? And I would say that first order problem, the one that is front and square and faces us all, is what are we going to do about productivity? And that's because... I'll show that it's the main driver of growth, and we think economic growth matters. The material improvement in living standards, as measured by the increase in production of goods and services, has been, I would almost say, the critical artefact of the modern world. If we go back to the pre-industrial age, it's that regular improvement in living standards of around 2 to 3% a year that means that every generation or so we are twice as well off as we were in a previous generation. It's a remarkable achievement of the last quarter of millennia that's, that's gone on in the advanced world. And I hope people in this room that Britain has been characterised correctly as the first industrial nation and it had the first with a long sustained period of economic growth. Um, uh, and in fact it reached a, p a peak in 1900 of, uh, of the extent to which it contributed a fraction of world output. It was just a fraction under 10% of world GDP in Britain uh, at the turn of the previous century in around 1900. Now, that fraction has declined for the good reasons that the rest of the world is also grown, uh, sometimes more rapidly, but also from a lower base. And this meant that the fraction of world GDP that the UK now contributes to the rest of the world is a fraction under 3%. So that doesn't mean we're three times worse off, we're a 30% well off. It means that we've actually continued to grow, but the rest of the world has grown more rapidly. And, and that is a sign of relative decline in some degree. And by itself is not something that should particularly concern us. And indeed, if we look forward ahead to the next 20 or 30 years, it's likely we're going to be 1% or less of GDP. That, so what we have to enter into the mindset of being, which is difficult for some people, is that we're not the biggest country in the world anymore. We're not likely to be the biggest country in the world anymore. That doesn't mean we can't have high standards of living, but it's got to be as a small player in a very large engine. And that's a critical sort of mental step that many people find very hard uh, to make. And I think that's something I want to start uh, by, by emphasising with you today. 
And when we go back to thinking about growth theory, you can't, don't have to go much further than Robert Solow himself got the Nobel Prize for his work on growth in 1987. And his argument, which I think remains true today, is technology remains the dominant engine of growth. He argues, if we suppose that all countries had access to roughly the same pool of technological innovations, imagine they're traded globally and we can all see the internet and we can all gain the same amount of knowledge, then it appears that the ones that invested fastest were best able to take advantage of the available knowledge. So it's not access to information, it's our ability to turn it into products and goods and services that is critical. And that's something that we haven't done particularly well at in the last 30 years and very badly in the last 10 years. That's led to a material relative decline and a sideways movement in productivity, which I think we have to address in this country, whether we remain in the EU, whether we leave, or whether we have a transitional arrangement that sees my life out. I don't know exactly. So let me, I hope you can see these numbers. Certainly these slides uh, will be available afterwards. But all I've done here is, um, the, if you look at the first dot, and I generally don't use um, equations and things in here, but I just want you to read that first dot and say that's output at a particular time, T. And what we tend to think of is output in the economy is some function of the capital that's in the economy, that's the capital K. And labour employed in that economy, that's the number of us who are working. Uh, that's L and there'll be some fraction A and B. Um, a and B could add to one, may not add to one, doesn't particularly matter. I'm just saying that the amount of output in the economy depends on the quantity of capital employed, the quantity of labour employed, and a mysterious A, which is productivity. In fact, it's total factor productivity. And to help you understand that, we simply divide the outputs by the inputs. Outputs are YT, inputs are AKT plus BLT, that's inputs, and the ratio of the two is productivity. That's the thing I was just talking about. Our ability to turn ideas into output depends upon the quality of our capital and the quality of our labour. The higher the level of the quality of the capital and labour, and I should argue later on, the better the institutions, the better the financial framework, the higher those levels of productivity we're going to see in an economy. That's a basic kind of uh, distinction to think about as we think about economic growth. And what I've done in the top um, table there is simply say, well, let's look at output per head over the seven years prior to the financial crisis. And over those seven years in total, output per head in the UK grew by a fraction of the 16%, so just over 2% a year. And we can, look, we can decompose that increase into that to which we'll say is, is explained by capital and labour inputs, capital over labour, so the amount of capital employed per unit of labour employed. And the rest of it is the growth of this productivity, this magical total factor productivity term. And you can see that in the period prior to the crisis, the increase in output per head can be explained just under 6% by the growth in the quantity of capital every labour unit had available to it to make its widget. And that can be all kinds of things. And just under 10% was this exogenous increase in productivity. If we look at the period after the financial crisis, there's been no increase at all in output per head. So we are on average not materially better off than we were before. Be absolutely clear that doesn't deal with the distribution. There may be lots of people who are better off, lots of people who are worse off. This is just an average number. Um, 
And if we look at that, there's been a small improvement in the quantity of capital per person employed. And I should argue later that's not surprising because interest rates have been zero, so investment's been relatively cheap, but it certainly hasn't boomed. And in fact, total factor productivity seems to have regressed in this period. And it um, stands out. It's not something we've seen before. Now, so what we've seen in the last 10 years is limited growth in real wages. Real wages is linked to labour productivity, which I'll explain in a minute. Limited investment. Yes, we've had an increase in 2%, but it's not very large, conditioned on the level of interest rates or what we might normally expect. Um, an investment, when we aggregate that up, when we accumulate investment over time, that leads to the level of capital stock. And what I'll show you later on is the capital stock has not increased to any great degree either. And that seemed to be part of the problem in the economy. There are lots of explanations. One is measurement. Maybe productivity is rearing ahead and we're just not capturing it. The digital economy is meaning all kinds of goods and services are now available to us free at the point of demand. We're not measuring any of that. So in fact, real productivity growth is considerably higher than, when, than we might be looking at. I'll come to that point a little bit later. One, one argument might be demand. Maybe to help firms develop new ideas, there needs to be a lot of demand in the economy so that they feel confident, they feel buoyant, there's no uncertainty. So they're likely to invest knowing that when they produce their new shiny uh, uh, smartphones, people will buy them. Without that demand or confidence about that demand, productivity may halter. That's an argument that's also out there. Another argument is fiscal policy. We've, it is said by people, had a long period of fiscal retrenchment. Those of you um, who come to my early lectures would know that I don't think that we've had a long period of fiscal entrenchment because debt to GDP has doubled in the last seven years. That's not consistent with fiscal retrenchment. But uh, those who are arguing that, that fiscal policy may be part of the reason that productivity has fallen, and actually I have some sympathy with that, and I'll come to some points later on. I want to consider the role of the financial system in holding back productivity because later on I'll show you that all sectors have fallen in their productivity, not just one particular sector. So whatever the effect is, it's affecting everything, not just the financial sector, not just agriculture, not just construction. So if we have to have an explanation, it has to be one that captures all the sectors. Let's see where we get to. So let me just illustrate just how shocking the, uh, <laughs> the uh, progress has been. And this is labour productivity. So we take um, this um, the level of output and we divide through by labour and we get output per head. And what we've then done is look at output per hour worked. So there's just a scale on the left-hand side, just an index. And what we have is the, the black dotted line is the pre-crisis trend. And what we're asking here is, as an index, based to 100 in 2007, what's happened to the quantity of widgets we produce for every hour that we are at work, on average, in the economy? So you can understand it's a difficult thing to construct, but essentially you take the quantity of output, divide it by the quantity of labour, and you get a measure of productivity. And the trend you can see is growing in the past, and that trend I can take way back, and you'll see a very similar form of trend. But what you'll see since 2007 is that there's been, at best, sideways movement. No increase in labour productivity, despite tremendously cheap um, levels of interest rates um, out there. So people haven't been investing in labour, or labour hasn't been investing in itself to increase the level of productivity as measured by these numbers. Um, we'll see in a minute that labour productivity pins down or explains wages very well in, in classical economics. It's labour productivity that determines real wages. 
In actuality, there's a difference between the two because it depends on firm and labour bargaining power and the state of the economy and the level of capacity. There's a lot of other factors. But in the long run, it's labour productivity that determines real wages. And we'll see later on that they have not recovered either since the start of the financial crisis. So can we understand this phenomenon? So the first thing to get across is this is really unusual. This is not something we expected. Our expectations are pinned down by the dotted line. If we were sitting here in 2007 and we'd ask ourselves, where are we going to be in 2015, 16, 17, we would have said that dotted line. It's the gap between what's happened and what we expected that measures the extent of frustration in this economy. Whether that should be directed at the European Union or I leave to yourself to decide. But this, I think, is our measure of frustration. This is the angst or anger that is out there. It's this gap, I, su I submit. Let's look at this in, in, in some other ways. We have the top three lines are output, number of jobs, and number of hours. Um, economists like to split the labour market into the extensive margin, which is the number of people at work, and the intensive margin is the number of hours they work. We multiply the two together to get the measure of the labour force, N times H. So what you'll see is that GDP has moved very much with the quantity of labour employed, N times H. But if we divide through um, the amount of GDP produced per hour, or the amount of GDP produced per job, or the hours that everyone works, we'll see that they've all been flat. So as measures of productivity, these haven't been in improved at all. So when politicians and others tell you that output has increased, it's actually basically increased because we've been working harder, not because we've been working smarter. I'm sorry to coin such a crass phrase, but I think it's the best way for me to think about it. If we were working smarter, we'd be getting more work per hour that we worked. But because we're working harder, we're getting more output because we're working longer hours. I, a sort of off-the-cuff remark from a colleague of mine the other day was that, of course, uh, we all work at the weekends now. And I think, well, yeah, we do, but should we? I mean, I, there's a kind of deep question there as to whether that's the right thing to do. So this is a way of thinking about whether we're working harder and smarter, and the, the results here suggest it's very much a case of harder rather than smarter. The same thing I just um, um, showed you a few minutes ago for the UK data can be taken back uh, 250-odd years. And you can see over the very long run, the growth rate has been between 1% and 2%. And the contribution of total factor productivity, A, has been around two-thirds. So over 250 years, if I wanted to understand the material increase in standards of living, around two-thirds of it can be well explained by this productivity term. The other third by an increase in the level of capital employed. And um, I now refer you to the, the lower panel. Well, you can see there over the very long run, to 1760 to 2015, Again, the average growth rate has been a fraction under um, 2%. That's the growth rate of output, not output per head. That's why the number at the top is lower. That's, that's actual productivity rather than uh, output. But total output has been growing at a fraction under 2%. And what you can see is if we look at the whole period, the contribution from labour was about 0.3 or 0.4. But if we look at the post-war period, or from the 20th century onwards, the labour contribution has been fairly limited. It's all been about capital and productivity. So that tells you in the first stages of the Industrial Revolution, growth was much more dependent upon increases in labour inputs 
And later on, it became much more about capital inputs and productivity. And that's where I want to concentrate the argument today. How can we get more capital laid down in the economy? And how can that or might that lead to increasing growth rates in total factor productivity? And again, these are the questions you need to be asking our politicians as they go into the process of negotiating exit from the European Union and indeed any other policies they might come up with over the next few years. Just to make the point further, this is annual total factor productivity growth in the UK in the post-war period. There's business cycle like year-to-year fluctuations. So the, the dotted lines are showing sort of longer averages just to help me force you to see what I see. <laughs> and you may see something different, but I kind of see what I see. So my job to make you think uh, that I'm right, maybe. Um, and, and you'll see in the, in, the, in, the, in the post-war period with the Marshall Plan operating across Europe, Productivity growth, this A term, was a fraction over 2% a year. And you see by the 1970s and 80s and 90s, it had fallen to under 2% a year. Whether we were in a high inflation period of the 1970s or in the supply-side reform period of the 1980s, there was a palpable fall. It doesn't seem to be that much of a difference. And what's happened subsequently is we've gone into the noughties as it's fallen even further. So it seems to be, may I submit, a structural problem in our economy. Not something we can say any political party has solved very well or looking forward anyone has got any answers to. And I would say again that these are the things that we need some answers to. This is appalling um, performance by the economy. Labour productivity, so rather than total productivity of all factors, I'm simply looking at the number of widgets produced by every worker on average for every hour that they work. A very similar pattern. Labour productivity over 2%, down to 2% um, in that 70s and 80s period, and then further falling to 1% on average over the last decade or so, with a very large fall at the time of the recession. So again, labour productivity mirrors the other stories on productivity I've been telling you so far. And I told you some moments ago, or mentioned, suggested, that labour productivity is very closely aligned with real wages, and this is an index of, of the average weekly earnings starting in February 08, um, finishing February this year, and you can see we haven't recovered. So average weekly earnings are lower than they were uh, nearly 10 years ago now. Um, that is very much pinned down by lower labour productivity. So if we want to think about disenchantment in the country, about economic outcomes, it's very much about squeezing incomes coming in. Now, actually, overall... And I haven't put this slide on today. The, the, the share of income in the economy going to labour as opposed to capital has been stable. So the thing missing from this is, of course, more households have more than one earner. So household income has not fallen to this extent. There's a difference between a particular wage rate you get for a job and the quantity of income coming into a household. It's a good thing that more of us are working at home. So the actual overall income going to labour, uh, that means not the Labour Party, it means people who are working, um, has remained stable since the early 1980s. That hasn't fallen. And that's very much to do with what economists call the participation rate. More people being involved in labour markets. Um, now let's look at real investment. I said some moments ago that, that the capital stock is the sum of investment in every year minus depreciation. It's just accumulating investment. And, and so you can see that investment follows the same pattern. It was budging up to 10% in this post-war boom period, 
um, low in the 70s because we were told inflation was high, nobody wanted to invest, and yet it remained low in the 80s um, uh, for reasons we can go into another time, but there seemed to be all kinds of reasons that investment didn't really recover in the way that we wanted at that time. And despite interest rates of around zero, real interest rates around zero, we're not seeing anything like the boom in investment that the price of investment would suggest there should be. There may be something that's tied up with confidence in the economy. So, this looks more complicated than it is, but this is simply the balance of savings or borrowing in the economy split by the blue line is the blue dots, the blue bars are households, and the greens are, are private corporations. I'd like you to draw your attention to those. And the standard pattern of an industrial economy was very much that households would be expected to save. So from all our income, we have a certain in-aggregate level of savings. Those savings are transmitted through the banking system or other financial intermediaries such as pensions or life assurance companies to firms who borrow against future profits that they might make and hire people. That's a very stylized and simple view of the way the economy should work. The intermediation is done by banks. If they're doing it properly, the funds are going to firms who give a rate of return high enough so banks can make a reasonable living, not an exorbitant living. The idea should be a reasonable living. And the rest of the return should go to the households who've saved so they can use those savings later on in life or when emergencies occur. That's the kind of basic model of the economy that we have in our head. And you can see in the earlier period that a lot of blue bars above the line saying that households are saving and a lot of green bars below the line saying that corporations are borrowing from them. Exactly in the mechanism that I've outlined. But since the financial crisis, what we can see is that um, firms, if anything, have been borrowing. The green bars are above the line, not below the line. Um, and households, these blue lines, have been broadly in balance. Not really saving, not really borrowing. Um, saying that something about the traditional mechanism, whereby the financial system is recycling household savings to firms, has not been working. Firms have been saving rather than investing. And households have not been saving. They've been spending about as much as they've been earning. And it's an interesting thought as to why that might be, and I'll come back to it a little later on. But my explanation is that it's very much tied up with problems in the financial sector that have not been allocating funds in the way it might have done, and people have been making different types of decisions as a result as to what we might expect. And with the lack of investment by firms, that has held down productivity levels and the rate of accrual of knowledge in the economy and held down levels of productivity. So I have a kind of theory in my head, but I don't want to make this too. It's a kind of story that I'm working on as to explain this decline in productivity. It's very much to do with problems in the financial sector. Um, so I can't go through all these tables, but as I said, um, they're all available online after this lecture, so please do spend time looking at it. But what I'm simply going to say here is that if I break up productivity in the top panel into what we produce in the economy as production, manufacturing or services, average, growth of productivity, average annual growth of productivity in the whole economy was half a percent in the period leading up to 2007. It's been zero subsequently, but we see a fall in each sector whether it's the production sector, the manufacturing sector, or the service sector. It's not confined to one sector alone. It's, in some sense, uniform. So if, we have a th if we're going to explain it, we need something that affects everything. 
And that's, that guides my intuition as thinking about the financial sector, because everybody has some interaction with savings and investment through there. Um, but but let's, let's carry on. Um, another way I can make the same point is, I apologise for all kinds of jargon here at the top, but MFP's multi-factor productivity, that's factor from each of 12 different sectors. That's the productivity from each of different sectors. And GVA is just gross value added is another measure of productivity. And all, I, all I've done here is, is cross-plot the levels of productivity in each of these sectors in the period prior to the financial crisis against the levels of productivity in the period after the financial crisis. And I was kind of wondering whether certain sectors that had high productivity before may have had low productivity afterwards. And if that was the case, they would be uh, on the... I'll see if this work, pointer works. They'd kind of be in the top left and the bottom right diagonals because if they were high before and low now, they'd be in this area. And if they were low before and high now, they'd be in this area. So if it was a case that were particular sectors, we'd expect this line to be negatively sloped. But if it was the case that if you were high before and you were a little bit lower, and all the sectors were higher than lower, then we'd have a positive slope here, which we have. And this intercept tells me that on average, all sectors have reduced their level of productivity growth by around 2%. So that would explain the fall in the previous chart. Uh, this is quarterly, so 0.5 comes to 2% a year. We see the fall to 2%, and it looks very much like it's an across-the-board fall across all sectors. And that's something we have to think very hard about why that is. It's not something that is sector-specific. There are the industries we look at for that calculation, whether it's agriculture, manufacturing, transport, information and communications, we see a fall um, across all those sectors. The first column is the number prior to the financial crisis. The second column is the number after the start of the financial crisis. Um, and what it looks like there has been is a fall in all sectors. Um, we can also look at the productivity in a, in a even more gran granular version of the sectoral breakdown in productivity by agriculture, mining, manufacturing, the whole list is there and we see a very similar pattern. Um, the, product, the relative productivity ratios are very similar. We're not seeing, so what this is doing is saying, let's suppose manufacturing um, was, uh, had, a, had a relative productivity rate of 1.1 prior to the financial crisis. That didn't change very much after the financial crisis. So it was more, at 1.1 it was more productive than average and it remains more productive than average. One that was more productive, so that the, the relative ranking of industry's productivity hasn't changed very much. That's what I'm trying to show from this chart. There haven't been big jumps. Construction didn't suddenly uh, become a, uh, a, an activity that was around average and moved to being well above average. It wasn't something that was changing. Everybody stayed in the same place, but they all fell together. That's the stylized fact about productivity. Now, one thing I want to deal with is, is measurement. There's a real concern as to whether we're measuring productivity accurately. So let me just spend a few minutes explaining how we measure um, productivity. And in manufacturing, so when it's, we are measuring widgets, it's kind of easy. All we do is we measure the sales of widgets and take away the intermediate consumption 
or the goods that we bought in order to produce those widgets. And the difference between the two gives us productivity. Um, but when we go to the non-market sector, so if I'm producing goods in government, I look at the volume of service provided, so the number of operations, or the number of tickets I issue as a policeman, I'm not really sure. And, I, and I, then I take two-thirds of that and I take away intermediate consumption. So immediately, alarm bells should be ringing. How the heck are we measuring output and productivity in non-market sectors, particularly as it continues to be a large part of what the economy is doing, and clearly in a growing and ageing economy, which is a good thing, it's good that we're growing and we're staying older for and more active for longer, it's a, a larger fraction of what we do in our economy. So could it not be the case that we're increasingly mismeasuring what's going on in the economy? And if we look at service sector, it even gets more uh, worrying. If we look at financial intermediation, um, one of the ways that we measure output in the, in the, finan in the financial sector is are fees and commissions receivable? It's one of the outputs. Net spread earnings, other operating income, uh, and financial intermediation services indirectly measured. So let's imagine there was a boom in financial services and people working in financial services started to charge a lot for their services. And we paid them a lot for their services in the form of bonuses. This would actually be measured as an increase in their productivity. And let's suppose after that period we learnt that they shouldn't be doing that and we caused them to reduce their wages and reduce their charges, that would look like a fall in productivity. So I think we have to be very concerned, even though I've spent a large part of this lecture talking about the measurement of productivity, we have to attach a severe health warning to it, particularly as we know in 2007 there was a financial crisis, and in the UK in particular, the financial sector is an important part of value added, around 12%. And if we throw in financial accounting, legal, administrative services, that might be nudging up towards 18, 19, 20% of output in our economy, the productivity of which we're finding very hard to measure. So, so please place a health warning, and a big one, on everything I'm saying. I, I haven't got the answers, but it's work that's going on to try and understand these things better. But I, I think the banking sector point, it, it, it becomes very clear uh, to understand that we may not be measuring these things very well at all. Um, I think I've already made this point, but it, it bears repeating, is, is what we... All I'm doing here is asking ourselves how have we done in investment after um, the end of the recession. And we've looked at the level of investment in previous recessions. Um, unfortunately, I'm now old enough to remember them all. Uh, 74, 79, uh, 89, and the current one. And you can see that investment fell by the largest amount and has recovered most slowly in this period. It's still not back to its previous level and that's the point about even despite low interest rates, despite everything else, firms have not invested. Go back to our point about balances, they've been saving, not investing. That then means that real investment as a proportion of GDP has not recovered. As you'd expect given the line I've just shown you, it's not only been on a downward trend since the 70s and 80s, this is the period in which Total factor productivity and labour productivity has progressively fallen as a growth rate. And you can see that investment um, fell in the recession, as you might expect, but hasn't come back to its level. And it's, it's a paltry fraction of GDP, 15%. Uh, the OECD average is nearer 20. 
Um, and we, we seem to have very low levels uh, of investment in our economy. Um, a lot of the new investment that comes along is for capital replacement, so it's not necessarily adding to the capital stock. It's a very relatively high fraction of investment used for capital replacement, suggesting that possibly depreciation rates have become higher. That might be one reason for low levels of investment. But overall, what this means is that the quantity of capital in our economy, that's the capital stock that's used by firms to produce goods and services relative to the amount of output, is not high. Uh, it's been falling on a secular basis. It's quite hard to measure. A number of people tried to measure it. And this is one estimate presented by uh, our friends at the European Commission. Um, but this is consistent with other measures that I've seen. And I want to say is that uh, it's certainly not been increasing over this time. So the investment levels have been low. And that means that the quantity of capital available to our economy is relatively low. And we think that's an important um, device to explain low levels of productivity. So which industries use capital and which industries don't? Well, we have an index here produced by the ONS of um, industries that use a lot of capital. This is a simple index between 0 and 8. You see that the, cap the really capital-intensive industries are real estate, water, electricity, gas and steam and construction. So that might mean that maybe again there might be a, a measure, measurement issue here because the growth areas of the economy in the recent past are the ones that have been relatively low users of capital. So we might have an economy that's growing but one that doesn't need the levels of capital stock that we had in the past. Information, communications, education, retail, financial and insurance activities, human health and social work, professional, scientific and technical other services and activities. So there's a possibility there may be, we may be exaggerating the impact of the reduction in capital on productivity because we may not need the levels of capital that we once needed to produce the number of widgets that we produce because the widgets we now produce are not cars, they're operations or they're uh, bits of information on the internet or football matches. I, it could be all kinds of different things that we're now doing. So let me not overstate the case. What we're trying to do is correct for some of these and see if we can still come to the conclusion that we're not investing enough. And supposition so far is that we probably are still not investing enough, even if we allow for these compositional changes in the nature of capital that we might need in our economy. And so we can look at the quantity of capital held in either manufacturing, construction, services, um, and the purple thing here is total. And you can see in all cases in 2007-9, it's fallen. So the quantity of capital in each of the main production sectors continues to fall. Uh, and then you can take that into employment space rather than output space and say, what is the growth in capital per employee? And you can see in, in the period when the economy was growing, every employee was getting an increase in the quantity of capital that that employee could use in order to carry out their job or function that the growth rate, uh, this is because employees fell, but you can see the growth rate, this, this is, these numbers shouldn't be interpreted as an increase because the denominator was doing all strange things. But what I want to point out in the last five or six years is the quantity of capital employed per employee has actually been contracting. So every time you go to work and every next day you go to work, there's less capital available for you to, uh, for you to do your job. 
And we think that's probably an important part of understanding the contraction in productivity we're seeing. We just haven't been giving employees sufficient capital to do their job. So what might explain this contraction in capital? Well, first thing is maybe public investment. So this is the quantity of investment done by the government. And you see that after a, a decline to around 1.5% in the mid-90s, this rose to something like 3% just before the financial crisis, but has subsequently fallen back to something like where we saw it in the, in the, 19, um, in the, not in the 1990s. These are low by international standards and may in part be a function of us trying to reach a fiscal deficit. This is public investment. So the fiscal deficit includes public investment and public expenditure. Because we don't split the two out, a government that's trying to reach a particular deficit may tend to reduce investment. So it could be that we should be splitting out public investment from expenditure when we try to understand fiscal policy. We don't do that. We ought to look at what the Chancellor says on the 22nd November to try and understand that better. But the reduction in public investment is probably important in this world. Um, how about R&D? Research and development is not just public, it's private as well. And what I want to simply point out is that compared to the rest of the OECD, uh, not the OECD, G7, Japan, Germany, US, France um, and Canada, the UK is, looks like it's on a secular decline from some 2% of GDP down to just over 1% of GDP, um, which I think is, a, is, is potentially a concern. I think research and development expenditure in a lot of studies is shown to be an important driver of productivity. Uh, this go back to Solo's point about technological change and understanding it could be our capacity to develop research is an important part of our ability to deal with new ideas and turn them into new forms of production. Um, but research and development, I want to point out, is as much from the private sector, that's the blue stuff, as it is from the government, that's the red stuff. And in fact, it could be quite symbiotic. It could very well be that private investment in conjunction with universities has a symbiotic relationship with public investment and the two have to work together. And this is where the development of institutions is very important. And those institutions might be universities, they might be colleges, but places where these things can be brought together in hubs such as we see in, in university towns could very well be a way forward in thinking about um, increasing levels of productivity. Now, I want to, uh, don't worry about all the lingo here, I just want to um, talk about some ideas briefly and then we'll conclude the lecture. Um, one possibility when I think about firms not investing is whether firms are FO doesn't mean what you might think it means, it just means old firms. Firms that are old and firms that are new. And I want you to imagine a world in which there are, there are old firms and new firms, but they both live for two periods. So when the firm is old, um, it um, may have high or low levels of productivity, depending on whether we think firms get better over their lifetime or get worse. It could be that a new firm has new ideas, and it's the birth of new firms that gives rise to productivity. Uh, and depending upon your view, it's the proportion of new firms to old firms. Now, you might think that it doesn't matter. So whether firms are old or whether firms are new, they have the same levels of productivity. And we'd have LL if the exogenous level of productivity 
was given, or HH if it was given and it was high. But if it was particularly old firms that had high levels of productivity, productivity would be higher in the economy if we had more old firms. So if we nurtured old firms, provided them with support, regional policies, uh, incentives, capital breaks, tax breaks, all those kinds of things that went out of fashion in the 1970s to nurture those old firms. Remember British Leyland? Well, I do, but anyway, all that kind of stuff. If that was our view, that firms got better as they got, get, got older, we might want policies that promote older firms. And the higher fraction of older firms that we had, the higher would be the quantity of productivity in the economy. On the other hand, we might think that it's new firms, all those young hipsters uh, developing firms in Hoxton, uh, with new ideas, we need to promote them, we need to get them in and get rid of the old firms who've got old ideas. And it could very well be that if we think it's the new firms that have got the high levels of productivity, if we want to raise total, pro total pro factor productivity in the economy, we need to do more in terms of taking capital from the old firms and giving them to the new firms who can use those capital uh, bits of unit for their new wonderful ideas, the next Apple or the next uh, whatever firm we want to think of. Um, and that's, uh, th that's an interesting thought. And there's a lot of people out there who say banks' forbearance, that is banks deciding to keep loans with older firms at low interest rates because even though they're not productive, because interest rates are low, they can continue to pay their interest rates and they stay in business, has been an important factor in driving down levels of productivity. What might otherwise have happened is those firms, as their productivity levels fell and they had debts that they couldn't pay, they would have gone bankrupt and their capital would have been recycled to new firms. And so what we've actually seen in the economy over the last 10 years is a fall in both firm births and firm deaths. Used to be a certain fraction of firms that died every year and a certain fraction of firms that were born every year. But that both of those activities have fallen in the last year and you will quickly understand that if firms are not dying at the same rate and firms are not being born at the same rate, what's happening is that the composition of firms is getting older. And therefore, if we're going to have a story that that's led to a fall in productivity, we're going to have to have a story that also said all firms are less old firms are less productive. And that's one possibility in thinking about this process, that it's really been an important, dynamically inefficient story to keep capital tied up with old firms but it would be consistent with explaining what we're seeing at the moment. Um, the capital is contracting and the productivity is falling. There needs to be more work done to explain this, but it's something I'm attracted to as a possible explanation. And indeed, if we can go further and try to understand what happens um, in an economy when there is a productivity shock and banks act against it or in favour of it to amplify the size of the shock. So just bear with me, we're nearly nearly at the end, I'm just illustrating an idea as clearly as I can. Um, so I want you to imagine a world in which product, this total factor of productivity thing I've been talking about increases, so we feel richer and we consume more. That's what this red line is saying. Because we're more productive, our real wage rises. That's what this red line is saying here. Because we're, we feel richer, in the future we're going to have more money, we borrow some money today against that richer future. And we could pay it back when we're richer in the future. So that's the kind of story that we might see following a productivity shock. I know I'm richer today, but I know I'm going to be richer into the future, so I can have a higher level of consumption today, 
and I can pay it back over the long-term future when I'm going to be richer for a long time, so I borrow. Because I increase my demand for loans, the loan rate, this is the external finance premium, goes up. And that's the kind of story that you would have that would start to be consistent uh, with what we see in the economy. But what we saw in the period leading up to the financial crisis was not that loan rates went up, is that they flattened. Interest rate spreads compressed prior to 2007. They weren't widening. So if this story is right, what we also need is a banking sector that's lending more to people as they think they're getting richer. And then what you get is an amplification. So what I'm saying is at the same time that productivity increased, telling people they're going to be richer, the banking sector decided to lend more to people and itself was measured to be more productive. And then what you see is even more consumption an even higher real wage because everyone thinks they're better off and being more productive, a great deal more lending, but because it's the banking sector supplying it rather than us just demanding, demanding it, an increase in supply lowers prices, these financial spreads compress in this world. And that could be the part of the story. It's a, a shock at the same time to productivity and the financial sector. And just to help the point, let's reverse the story. What I've done here is reverse the story and say, well, now let's suppose there's a, uh, a negative, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a reduction, not a negative shock to productivity, but let's suppose productivity starts to wane. We're getting tired as an economy, too many old firms, and productivity isn't jumping up as much as it did before. That's the story, this kind of tired economy that's getting to the end of its productive life. If at the same time the productivity becomes less powerful, uh, well, let's just deal with that argument first. Productivity becomes less uh, persistent, less strong. Consumption doesn't respond as much. Real wages hardly move at all in this world. We borrow a bit to help smooth our consumption. And because we're not borrowing very much, interest rate spreads don't rise very much. If at the same time the banking sector contracts, because it's been told it was a naughty boy or, or it's got to change its act, it's got to change the way it lends to people, what you'll then see is a much larger fall in consumption. You'll see a contraction in loans. You'll see a fall in real wages because the whole economy will feel poorer. And you'll see financial spreads rising. So even though interest rates are low, it's still costly to borrow. And this is part of a story that we might be seeing in the period after 2007. So we have sum up a a, a severe productivity puzzle in the economy. We think if we're going to make the most of our goods and resources, we have to make advantage of available knowledge. For some reason, we've stopped being able to take advantage of available knowledge at the time when knowledge has become free at the point of demand. It's a perverse response that we're not exploiting it at the time knowledge is so widely available. And it's a great puzzle for us to understand. But what we do see is that we're not investing. Our capital stock looks like it's contracting. Public investment is not rebounding in a very strong manner. Do, excuse me, research and development is poor. Firms, we can see, are not borrowing from financial markets. And households are not saving. This could well be something that's well explained by the financial sector but it's certainly a productivity shift across all sectors. And I think it's a first-order problem for our economy to solve. I haven't got or won't give you all the answers today, 
but I hope I've persuaded you it's a very important problem for us to consider. Thank you very much.